Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your spirit here today, Father, for all the joy, the excitement, for the opportunity to see men and women obeying you and families bringing new children into the world. Father, thank you for the joy of these things that we so often can take for granted. Everything that is good coming down from heaven is from the Father of lights, we're told. And we should acknowledge more often than we probably do, Father, just how good you are in all respects, at all times, such that even in the difficulties of our daily life, Father, nonetheless, you are turning them to good in us and in others. We thank you, Father, for the blessing that you have continued to pour out on us in so many ways. Not the least of which, Father, is the blessing of studying your word. How often is it that we hear of stories, men and women around the world who cannot even access your word, much less study it in freedom and in peace. And here we have it, Father, sitting in front of us every day we want it. And probably neglecting it at times. Father, thank you for the opportunity, for the grace to open your Bible freely, to open up the word, to hear from the creator of this universe and to know your thoughts and your desires. For one day we will be with you. We will meet you, Father. And we want to meet you knowing you as opposed to meeting you as a stranger would meet. So thank you, Lord, for the word tonight. Teach us as only you can by your spirit. And use me, Father, to that purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. After six weeks, we are finally transitioning into chapter 9, but we're still looking at the various miracles that Matthew is recording of Jesus' time in the Galilee. Today, what we're going to do is finish the second section of three sections that divide up these two chapters, these sections of miracles that Matthew selected. And the section we're currently in is one that emphasizes Jesus' power to do the kinds of things that only God can do. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we watched Jesus controlling the forces of nature. They were on the Sea of Galilee. A storm came up and he stilled the surface of the waters with just his voice. Now that's certainly a God thing, right? Only God does that. Last week we studied Jesus' power over the judgment of demons, having power over the demonic realm, and that's another role that only God can play. And this week, we find Jesus demonstrating power and authority in a way that is quintessentially God and God alone. And that is forgiving sin. So let's revisit the scene as we begin to look at chapter 9. Previously, in what we've studied, Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee from west to east, on the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, on the lake. He went over there at night, as you remember, to escape the crowds that were pressing in on him. And as he landed in the, the eastern side in Gadara, he was confronted by those two men who were demon-possessed, and that's when he healed them. Now, in the aftermath of that, you remember the townspeople were so afraid of the power they saw demonstrated in Jesus that they told Jesus, they begged Jesus, please leave us. And he did. So we pick up there in chapter 9. Verse 1, getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Okay, we're just going to stop right there. You have the townspeople saying, Get out of here. Uh, Jesus, respecting their wishes, he crosses, we're told, back to the west side. And as you notice, it says he comes to his own city. Now, how many of you would think, oh, he went to Nazareth? Well, if you look at a map, Nazareth is not on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the city he's talking about here is not Nazareth, but Capernaum. You remember earlier in this study, we learned that Jesus had moved his home base of ministry from where he had grown up in Nazareth to Capernaum. He had moved with his mother and his siblings there at the outset of his ministry. 
And we learned at that time why he did it. It was a strategic move. Nazareth was located off the beaten path. It's way up in some hills. It's not easy to get to. And Capernaum, on the other hand, it sits by some major roads. It's on the sea. And all that makes it very easy for someone who wants to do ministry in a region to work from the Sea of Galilee and to work from those roads. So Jesus moved to Capernaum to support his ministry. And now he returns to this newly adopted home with his disciples. And if you look at Luke's account of this same moment, Luke tells us that Jesus comes into Capernaum, goes into a home, and starts to teach inside the inner courtyard of a home. And just as a brief explanation on home architecture in that day, homes didn't have glass windows. They had open windows for air to move through. And quite often they'd have a central area inside the home that was open to the sky. And so Jesus is in one of these open courtyards in the center of a Jewish home somewhere in Capernaum. And on that day, as he's teaching, he has collected to himself a considerable crowd of religious leaders. We're told in Luke's account, in Luke 5.17, this. One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. That's the same scene. If you go look at Luke 5, 17, you'll see it's in the same scene that we're in now. So you have these religious leaders from all over. We're not just talking about those who were in the nearby towns of the Galilee, but we're told from Judea, that's the southern half of Israel, and all the way from Jerusalem, which is 60 miles away. So these men have walked 60 miles to find Jesus. Mark says there were so many of these scribes present in the room at this time that there was no space left in the room. They're pouring out the front door to hear Jesus. Now, you may remember at an earlier point in what we've studied here, that Jesus healed a man of leprosy. In fact, that was his very first healing in this section, remember? And when we studied that miracle, I told you that that was the very first time in Israel's history, since the law had been given, that the requirements of Leviticus 14 came into force. You remember I told you that Leviticus 14 is that chapter in the law that tells Israel how to handle the situation of someone healed from leprosy. If a person gets healed from leprosy, Leviticus 14 is your instruction manual to say, okay, what do we do next with this guy? And it involved going to the priest in the temple and showing himself before the priest and telling the priest, look, I've been healed. And the priest inspect him for a week to make sure it's true. And when they can verify he's healed, they declare him clean. They declare it true. All right, well, that happened. So in the time after Jesus healed that guy, he went to the temple. He showed himself to the priests. They verified that cleansing, and they declared him officially restored. And yet, as I told you, never before had that ever happened in Israel's day. And so that curious detail of the law, this curious fact that there was this chapter of Scripture that had never had to be needed, it led the rabbis to conclude that If a man ever came with the power to heal a leper, that healer would have to be someone uniquely anointed by God. In other words, they concluded that man would have to be the Messiah. And thereafter, it became known as a messianic miracle that if someone could heal a leper, you were looking at the Messiah. So naturally, when this leper arrived at the temple and he was cleansed and the priest verified that, well, news of that guy's healing, it made its way around the religious leaders very quickly. Everyone would have been excited to hear that we have a leper on our hands that just got cleansed. Leviticus 14, yes, it happened. We've used it. All right, well, they would have understood the meaning of that sign. And so they would have come to investigate the man who seems to have a credible claim to being Messiah. And that was not unusual, by the way. Messiahs came along all the time, or so-called 
messiahs. People popped up from time to time claiming, I'm the messiah. And anytime some self-proclaimed savior would do this sort of thing, it was the religious authorities that would either inspect and affirm or inspect and deny that man's claims. And if these authorities found reason to approve that person's claim to be a Messiah, then that would have led the nation to follow him. They would have declared him and anointed him Messiah and said, this is your Messiah. And if they reject the claims, they would likewise tell the people, ignore this idiot, he's not who he claims to be. And on top of that, they'd accuse him of blaspheming, which is punishable by death. So to this point, no Messiah had ever been confirmed, and so the nation was still awaiting their deliverer. And so after Jesus heals the leper, here he is now in Capernaum, finding himself under the microscope, and I should add, in the sights of the religious leaders. Perhaps some of these scribes have come to investigate with an open mind. Maybe they truly had good intentions. We don't know. But even if that were true, I can tell you, they all quickly set themselves against Jesus in the end. And they do so largely because of scenes like the one we're studying right here. Because as Jesus meets this man, who is a paralytic, we're told, he declares this man to be forgiven of his sins, which leads all of those religious leaders in that room to gasp, probably in unison, in horror over what they just heard this man say. I bet if if you'd been in that room, you would have felt the wind of all of their gasping at that moment. And to understand what's going on here, I need to give you a better sense of the scene. First of all, you have the man's unique entry into the room. He's paralyzed, we know, so he's being brought into the room on a bed, being carried by a few of his friends. And those scribes are so numerous in this room that Luke says that they literally block access to Jesus. So uh, apparently those pompous, self-important men weren't willing to yield their place to the needy person coming in on a stretcher who's seeking healing. They won't let him in. So the men that are with him have to find another way to get to Jesus. And Luke tells us that they ended up getting up on the roof with the guy. Uh, how they did that, we don't know. You know it would have been a, a production to even get him up there. And then after they had him up on the roof, they walk over to the edge where they can look into the center of the, of the building where Jesus is. And I, ha- I assume they had ropes or something. They lower him down in front of Jesus. I mean, it's almost like a Hollywood or Broadway production, right? Here comes the man right down in front of Jesus as he's teaching. It's, it would have been kind of funny. You know, what's interesting about that scene, as you imagine it, those religious leaders made themselves a barrier to Jesus. They formed a physical barrier in the room, right? But in time, they also became a spiritual barrier to the people of Israel finding their Messiah. They denied Jesus as Messiah. They told the people he was a fraud. He was not worthy of their attention. And in that way, the scribes put themselves between the people and salvation. They became stumbling blocks, Jesus says. Now that still happens. I'm not going to stay on this topic very long, but I think it's worth noting as we pass by it. There are still people who do this. There are religious leaders, people of religious orders, people of certain religions that tell their followers that they and only they can grant you access to God. And they claim to hold the secret to gaining God's forgiveness and salvation. But the reality is, such people are actually stumbling blocks. They are standing in your way before God. Their lies and their false claims that are not supported by Scripture are proof to you that they don't know what they're talking about. And you can be sure that when someone claims to be a gateway to God, they're actually a wall blocking your way. But those who are being drawn by the Spirit of God into a relationship with Christ, you know what's cool about that? The Bible says they're going to find their way to Jesus regardless of any obstacles. 
Notice Matthew says, Jesus takes note of their faith as he sees him coming down from the roof. That pronoun is plural, which would tell us that the men were working together in a common belief that Jesus was a healer and that he was the Messiah. And that's proof to us that, friends, faith always finds a way to Jesus. Nobody has the power to prevent God's children from reaching him. And I love the picture that's created in this moment by these two groups. All right, that's first thing to note. Next thing to note. Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. I think that's an interesting point all its own. The verb tense that Matthew uses in Greek here reflects instantaneous action. In other words, he's saying the man's sins were being forgiven in that very moment by Jesus. Jesus is not here to just announce something that was already true. Jesus is making it true by his words. That's the point. And I also want you to notice, Jesus does not say your sin as in some particular thing the man may have done. He declares his sins are forgiven. That is, everything that this man had against God is all wiped out in that moment. He is saying you are completely clean before God. And furthermore, notice, this man's forgiveness was based entirely on his faith in Jesus. Because as Jesus spoke these words, Matthew says, he took note of their faith. Collectively, all those men acting in a shared belief. So Jesus puts no burdens on this man. He does not have to accomplish any works of restitution. He doesn't have to do any penance. He doesn't have to say some mantra of prayer 20 times on his knees and then pay so much to the church and then show up so many times and whatever, whatever, whatever that we make up and think that that somehow makes God happy. Now, only his faith in Jesus was necessary for him to receive God's forgiveness of his sins. And he says that forgiveness covered every sin that man had before God. Now, Christ's statement to this guy posed two concerns for the Pharisees. Now, we hear what they say, right? This man blasphemes. But their concerns come out of two directions at the same time. First, they would have objected to the idea that any person could be exonerated of all their sins merely on the basis of faith alone. That was not the Pharisaic mindset. In first century Judaism, Jewish religious leaders were teaching that if you were born Jewish into the family of Abraham, that was sufficient to ensure that you have salvation. Jews were saved, period. That was the idea. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the Pharisees defend themselves on that basis to Jesus in an exchange that you see written in John. Let me just read a small part of it. In John chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. And therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and they said to him, Well, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. You are of your father the devil, Jesus says, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. I love that exchange. I would love to see the face of those Pharisees when he says, you are of your father the devil. You see, they were claiming that because they were born of Abraham physically, that and that alone made them good man worthy to go to heaven. Jesus says, well, you got two things wrong. Number one, that's not how you get to heaven. Number two, God's not your father. That's the self-deception of the Pharisees, of the scribes. Furthermore, the scribes believed that being Jewish, though that was how you obtained salvation, it went deeper than that. They believed that you received the benefits thereof by careful observation of the law. 
So in other words, what they believed was that God saved the Jewish people merely on their basis of family ties to Abraham. But forgiveness of sin was accomplished through the law. Those two things working together. And that's why we find Paul so working so hard in his letters to tell the church that forgiveness of sin is never through works of law. He keeps hammering that thought because in the first century church, you had Jews coming to faith, coming into the church, and they brought with them this Pharisaic mindset. And so they began to assume that they had to do works of law in order to receive God's forgiveness, even in the church. And Paul had to continue to remind them, no, it's by faith alone, not by works of law. By the way, that wasn't just true in Paul's day for the church. That's always been the way it is, even for the Jew. By faith alone. And yet these men heard Jesus in this moment declaring this guy to be fully forgiven by God of his sins based merely on faith. And they said, no, that's not how it works. Now, if you think about that for a minute, you might, have, might wonder, why would someone object to that truth? Like, what's wrong with that? Isn't that good news? I mean, wouldn't it be good news to learn you do not have to earn God's forgiveness? And it is good news. That is, unless your heart is set on something else. And in this case, these men, these religious leaders of Israel, they had their hearts set on something other than receiving forgiveness from God because they took that for granted. They assumed that. What they had their hearts set on was maintaining power over the people of Israel, on remaining that gateway to God. And so as long as the people believed that their access to God's forgiveness depended on works of law, these men stayed in power over them because they were the arbiters of the law. They decided who had broken the law and who had not. And if you broke the law, they decided what you had to do to make up for it. And they decided if you had done enough to make up for it. And because you knew that about them, you were constantly reminded that if you don't keep the Pharisees happy, you might not have God happy either. Ever been in a religious system where it kind of worked that way too? Ever been in a family where it kind of worked that way? You know the burden of it then. There's no pleasing somebody in that position, is there? It's how they maintain their power. They place themselves in a position of deciding whether or not you're getting God's forgiveness, and if you truly want God's forgiveness, you're going to do everything you can to make that person happy. Hence the power of the Pharisees. That brings us to their second objection. Their second objection is to the very idea that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. Their concern here is actually kind of reasonable when you think about it, because, friends, no man, no woman, has the power to forgive your sins. Period. And I want to make something clear on that point. Let's just start with the word sin. You know, sin is not just a bible word for making mistakes, doing wrong things. Oh, the Bible calls it sin. Now, sin is a technical term in the Bible. Sin is an offense against God. That's what it is, an offense against God. It's disobeying the Creator. And that's a fundamentally different thing than just making a mistake. For example, when I hurt somebody, let's say, for example, I speak a false word against somebody. Well, I'm going to offend that person, right? And that person might forgive me of my offense. They might say, it's okay, Steve, we understand. We forgive you. And as they do, you know, it's all good. It's all well between us at that point. But that's not the end of the matter, friends, because my behavior of speaking that false word, that also offended God. And because I've broken his standard of righteousness in that way, I am now guilty before him of sin. That's what the Bible says. So as a result, I've incurred a debt before God and a penalty that must be paid for that offense, the Bible says. Now God, in his mercy and in his grace, he can forgive me of that offense if he chooses to. But here's the thing. 
Only God can forgive me of sin because it's Him who I've offended. No one else can do that in His place. No person has the authority to offer me God's forgiveness. That's His and His alone to offer. So like in the case of my example of of offending someone, right? That person I insulted, they may choose to forgive me for my offenses against them. That's fine. But no matter how forgiving they are, no matter how understanding that person is, they can never grant me God's forgiveness. Do you understand? And God does not look down on me and say, Oh, that person doesn't care anymore? Okay, I won't care either. Now, it doesn't work that way. Only God can grant you forgiveness for sin, and therefore, unless and until the Lord is willing to forgive someone, that person continues to be convicted by what they've said or done, and one day we face the penalty for that sin unless and until we've been forgiven of it in grace. So the religious leaders object to Jesus' words, and rightly so, at least as far as it goes, because they see Jesus as putting himself in God's place, and they, of course, don't see him as God. And in that sense, they say he blasphemes. Matthew says some of the men in the room think it to themselves. They don't actually say it. They think this man is blaspheming. Blaspheming, by the way, technically it's profaning the holiness of God. Or it's, I'll give you some examples. We blaspheme when we presume to put ourselves in God's place. Or if we misrepresent God's word or misrepresent or profane his character or his name. That's blaspheming. So what these men have concluded, the scribes, they concluded that Jesus just committed blasphemy because he took the place of God, he presumed to have the power of God to forgive sins, oh, and they think he's altered the word of God because he's saying you can be forgiven on faith alone, and they don't think that that's what the Bible says. In reality, Jesus is God, so he is not blaspheming when he puts himself in the position of forgiving. And number two, he didn't change the word of God at all because it is the scribes who have tra- changed it. They're the ones who are wrong. Even in the Old Testament, you see this repeated. Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And then in Deuteronomy, Moses told the people of Israel that they could find their way to heaven not by commanding someone to come down from heaven or someone to come up from the earth to find heaven for them, but rather, he says in Deuteronomy thirty fourteen, he says, but the word, that is the word that saves you, that brings you forgiveness, that word, he says, is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you may observe it. Of course, what he's saying is that confession of faith is all that's required. To receive forgiveness. So what Jesus is doing at this moment is just setting the record straight. He's just teaching it the way it is. And he's got a room full of guys who are confused, but they think he's the blasphemer. Jesus is the one to speak for God because he is God. Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the one to not only represent God to us, but to speak to God for us. So Jesus did not blaspheme. These men are wrong. And that's why we see the second half of the story now. As Jesus has declared this man forgiven and he hears... And knows, these men are saying, he's a blasphemer. He now takes the next step to validate his claims before them. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, get up 
pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. It begins with Jesus saying, he knew their, Matthew saying Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he just responds to them out loud for what they're thinking. He says, well, why do you think evil in your heart? I think he did that intentionally. That is, he called them out for what they were thinking as a first step to demonstrating to them that he was God. I mean, he could know their thoughts. You know, that'll, that'll shake you up right away, right? How'd you know what I was thinking? I would love to have seen their faces in that moment too. I, I like to imagine some of the guys, remember not everyone said it. The, the text says that some in the room thought this. And not everyone thought it. And so as Jesus looks at the room and says, why do you think evil in your heart? I like to imagine that some of these guys that were thinking kind of put an innocent face on for the moment. and said, well, it wasn't me. I don't know. Were you thinking that? I wasn't thinking that. But they've been caught. So Jesus turns next to offering them a proof for his claim. And he does something very interesting here. He uses a form of rabbinical logic called kal v'chomer. And in literal Hebrew, that just means from difficult to easy. From difficult to easy. And the idea here is simple. I can demonstrate the power to accomplish a difficult thing. And if I do that, then I should be assumed to be able to do an easier thing also. Uh, like, for example, let's say I, pro- I claimed that I could lift 500 pounds. And you said, no, you can't, Steve. I said, okay. And I went and I picked up 1,000 pounds. Well, now you'd have to concede, I guess you can pick up 500 also. Even though I haven't picked up the 500 in front of you, you have to assume as much because I did the harder thing. That's the idea of this rabbinical logic technique. And so in, in Jesus' case, what he's saying is, you've accused me of being unable to do the easy thing. I'm going to prove that I have the power to do that easy thing by doing the hard thing in front of you. So in this case, the power to forgive sins, he says, is the easy thing. Now, that might be an odd way to look at it for you and I, because we think of that as being a hard thing. How do you convince God to forgive someone? Well, that's not exactly what he means. He means it's easy because after you say such a thing, your sins have been forgiven, it's impossible to prove me wrong. Because no one can see that. You can't go up to heaven and look at the heavenly ledger that God keeps and know, in fact, that that person was forgiven. It's really an unprovable statement. So in that sense, it's easy because words are cheap. Anyone can say that. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. You can just spout off all you want. That doesn't prove you're God. No one on earth can say one way or the other. There is no visible sign, which makes it easy to say. Now, on the other hand, if you say to a paralyzed man in a public setting, I might add, get up and walk, okay, now that's a hard thing, because in a split second, you're going to be shown to be either a liar or who you say you are, right? There's no faking that, or not easily anyway. So if the man does not get up, your deception is exposed. And if he does get up, okay, well, we're on a whole new level now. Now, both those statements, that is, your sins are forgiven and get up and walk, both those statements have one thing in common. Only God can do them. You hear me? Only God can forgive your sins. We already explained why that's true, right? Because it's an account against God, an offense against God. Only God has authority to tell you he's not offended anymore, to forgive you. And likewise, only the Creator can heal the physical body by just his word, the same word that created it. So, if Jesus can heal a man by his word, what he's showing you is that he is the creator God. And if he is God, then he also can declare a man forgiven of sin, because that is what God can do. So, he proves that he has the power to do the easier thing by doing the harder. He tells the man, get up, and he does. Right then and there, in front of all those people, and he walks home. 
And as he does, you're told the room of scribes and all the people waiting outside witness this miracle. They're awestruck. It's a form of, of, in Greek, the word actually means fear. It's a fear of God. They are literally afraid. And then they begin to glorify God because they recognize he is giving this kind of power to men, they think. That's exactly the kind of proof that these guys needed to verify his claims to be Messiah, which is why they've come there in the first place. But as Jesus said, they had evil in their hearts. And they weren't looking to prove Jesus. They were looking to disprove, to discredit Jesus. And Jesus wasn't helping them at this point. And that's why I think he began this moment as he did with this guy. Remember how it opened up? He starts by forgiving this guy of sin, not healing him, of his disease. You know, if you look back on the, what, we, what we've seen so far in the gospel, at every point where someone comes to Jesus and asks for healing, they come before him, they say, I want to be healed, and then he grants them a physical healing, usually without a word, and he moves on. But this time, here you have this guy who comes before Jesus, obviously looking for physical healing, and what does Jesus do? He gives him spiritual healing. Only later, after the Pharisees refused to believe Jesus' words, then he follows that with the physical healing. Why did he do that? Why this time? I think it's because he knew that he was under inspection by this room full of lawyers. And so in this moment, what he does is he constructs a test, and not just for them, but for everyone who reads this passage. That is a test that mankind can use in determining who do you believe about God and about his forgiveness and about salvation. Who do you believe? And the test is simply this. If you're deciding, if you're trying to figure out who you are going to believe can speak for God and tell you about heaven and hell and what comes after death and what I have to do to get there. If you're interested in all in that topic and you're looking for someone to explain it to you, well, you should trust the one who can back up their words with power. Because talk is cheap. That's what you should learn from this test. In this moment, Jesus spoke the words of forgiveness first and after he had spoken the words of forgiveness and everyone's like, whatever, then... He shows power. Why that order? Because accepting his words before he showed himself with his power, before that moment, accepting those words was a matter of faith. Right? And, and it wasn't as if no one believed him. Those men on the roof, they all believed him. They were forgiven because they believed him. Because they had faith before the power, they were credited with the faith that saves Now, the scribes, they lacked faith in Jesus, which is why they would not believe his words even after the power showed up. You see, that's the whole point. You cannot substitute sight for faith. That is, you cannot substitute belief in powers, wonders, and and, and amazing acts in front of you for the faith that saves. You have to have the willingness to believe what the Word of God says, and then power just comes around later to validate what you've already believed. Now, before we finish, I'd like to wonder about one thing, and I hope you'll have this same appreciation as I did, because as I come to this story every time, I always have the same thought. I wonder if the paralyzed man, when he heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, I wonder if he was a little disappointed. I mean, I'm not being funny about it. I actually think that might have been possible. I mean, he's probably spent most, I don't know, maybe all of his life as a paralytic. And I've got to tell you, friends, in this day and age, paralysis, that was a hard way to live, even worse than you might imagine it to be. Because there were no social services. You know, there were no handicapped parking permits. There, there were no special seats at the front of the... There was no sympathy. I mean, in this day and age, society typically viewed someone who was paralyzed as having a curse from God, and therefore they must deserve it, and that gave them license to ignore the person. So, you have to believe this man was desperate 
for physical healing. And it's evidenced just by the fact that his friends have gone to so much trouble to get him here. And he gets this chance, he's finally there. You know, he kind of breaks through and he's in the moment and he's lowered down. He's like, hallelujah, finally. And he gets down there and then the great healer says, your sins are forgiven. And I have to believe, he came. can you imagine the guy's face a little? I think he was probably looking up like, and? You know, want to say anything else? <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story on myself. When I was young, I mean, a young kid at home, I wanted a Hot Wheels toy car racetrack. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen those? They used to run around, run around, right? And I wanted it for Christmas. I saw it advertised on some Saturday morning TV program and I was hooked at that point. And for the next month, all I asked my parents for for Christmas was that one toy. And when the day came, I was convinced that they were going to get it for me because I hadn't asked for anything else, right? And we get into the opening. You know how this routine is. You get into the opening and you're waiting. Where's the one that looks like a car racetrack, right? And I go through all the opening. We get to the end, no racetrack. And it was at that point, I was really confused because I was sure I was getting it. And my parents, at that point, they realized I was confused. And so they took me outside. They revealed, you're not getting a racetrack, Steve, come on. They took me outside. And as they come outside on the, on the driveway, there is a basketball goal ready to be assembled and then put up into the ground at the end of my driveway. And they tried to explain that this is a basketball goal that we think it'll last a lot longer than that, that toy track. You know, and that I'm barely holding in my disappointment at this point. And they said, you know, as you grow older, Steve, um, you're going to appreciate playing basketball there long after you forget about that little toy. And they kept trying to explain it to me, right? And of course, they were correct. And my, my momentary disappointment notwithstanding, uh, in the end, I spent countless hours playing basketball on that goal until I graduated high school and left home. And it gave me a love for the sport. I still have it today, even though I can't play it anymore. Uh, and if anyone who's ever played with me were here, they'd tell you I never could play it, but I tried. <laughs> But even still, my point in this is it took me a while to appreciate the wisdom of my parents' decision. I had to, I had to shift my perspective from that immediate gratification expectation to appreciating the future benefits of a meaningful gift. And you might say, well, I, I needed to mature in that respect, that I needed to have a perspective on the future. Or as I like to say here, I needed to have eyes for eternity when you think about spiritual things. So from that point of view, I'm kind of guessing this man was a little disappointed that he didn't get healed right at first. I mean, we know eventually his disappointment turns to relief when Jesus does tell him to get up. But I also wonder this about the guy. I wonder if the healing mattered as much to him in time as that forgiveness did. You know, as the end of his life approached, and I assume his body began to fail like it does for everyone, where was he finding his hope at that point? I bet he was not hoping for another physical healing. And I guarantee you, he found hope in knowing that when he died, as he would do eventually, that he knew he was going to stand before Christ again, and he was going to be loved and forgiven and saved. I bet that's what was on his mind. And I think that's why the Lord opens this conversation by saying, Be of good courage, son. Be encouraged that salvation is possible by faith alone. Be encouraged that God is willing to heal your soul. Be encouraged that you have eternal life. Don't put your stock in your physical ability to walk. Now, God in grace and in mercy gave him both. But friends, you need to be encouraged today by this truth. I hope you are. That is, that Jesus Christ proved his claims that he is God 
over all, that he can heal the body, that he can control the forces of nature, that he has power over the demons and puts them in their place, and that ultimately he died on a cross to satisfy the penalty that we all owe God for our sin. Now, you're a Christian, and you probably know what I'm saying, and so as a result, you're probably hearing this for the 15th, thousandth time, but I want you to understand something about the repetition. If you're not careful, the fact that you know it and you're saved can eke out, it can leak, as it were, and in time you start to think about this world again in such a way that your hope finds itself in things like your physical strength, your material worth, your social standing. I mean, it's, it's funny how we can let ourselves fall back to the point where we once were, where those things dictate our contentment and at the same time, we're happy that we're saved. You've got to flip those. This has to be the basis of our encouragement. Christians have needs. They always will. Healing, equipping, provision, comfort, restoration, all the rest, yes. But friends, even if God gives you all of those things, and He will from time to time, they fade. They ultimately fade anyway. And so if you put your hope in those things, your disappointment is guaranteed sooner or later. So I hope, if nothing else, it's a reminder today that your hope comes from a certain knowledge that you are forgiven by God by your faith alone. And that, I hope, is enough to sustain all of us through trials, through deprivation, through sickness, through discomfort, through whatever comes. Because this world's passing. The faster the better. Hallelujah. And because those things are passing, you put your hope in the fact that God's forgiveness is forever. You know, He didn't just save you for the sins you had up to that point. He has saved you for every sin you can conceivably do until you're dead, which is not licensed to do more. But it is a certainty of assurance and hope that you can rest in. And may I add, if the gift of heaven doesn't seem as important to you as, it, as some of those other things may seem to you, like provision, like health and the like, well, I can tell you this, as you get closer to the end of your life, whenever that may come, Having God's forgiveness for your sin is going to be a lot more precious to you than anything you've put your goal on in the meantime. So for those last people in the room for whom they have not perhaps placed trust in Christ for their eternal future, I just repeat that question to you again. When you find yourself at the end of your life, who are you going to turn to to know what comes next? You ought to turn to the person who has proven he has the power of God because anything less is worthless. Jesus stands ready to forgive anyone who comes to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for this reminder in Scripture of your immense, unlimited power and yet your tender forgiveness and mercy. Thank you, Father, that you've looked down on the likes of us and for no reason of our own, by no credit of ours, Father, you have deemed us a recipient of your grace, of your mercy and your forgiveness. And in giving us the gift of faith, you have brought us into the family of God. Thank you, Father, for that mercy. I pray that there may be someone in the room tonight for whom this is a message they have heard for the first time in a true and meaningful way, and they have felt you calling on them tonight to make the same confession. They don't need to talk to me. They don't need to talk to anyone in particular. They just need to acknowledge in their heart what they know to be true. But if that has happened, I do pray they would speak to someone in the room. Our walk with you is not a singular walk, Father. It's a walk in company of other believers, and I pray that they would reach out to someone who would walk with them. But for all of us, Father, who know you, thank you for this grace. Help us to live according to it, pleasing you with our obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.